I was challenged this week uh, as I was preparing this message about uh, how do I express my faith, and so I will ask you that question. What are some examples of you expressing your faith in God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, Some say they have no faith, but I would dispute that. Even atheists have faith. They express faith that there is no God, and so they are a faith worldview. And uh, whether you're agnostic, atheistic, Christian, Muslim, uh, everybody believes in something and places faith in something. So how do you express your faith? As a student of church history, there are many throughout church history who have gone to extremes and great extremes to express their faith and their devotion and consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of my favorites is St. Simeon the Stylides, St. Simeon Stylides. And he lived uh, from 388, A.D. 388 to uh, 459. And his fame came because he retreated to the Syrian desert, and he was an ascetic, and he lived on top of a Roman column on a little platform no more than six feet by six feet for 37 years. And his followers and disciples would bring food, and he would haul it up with a rope, and that's where he stayed, and he gained quite a lot of fame. He was trying to express his faith living on the top of that pillar. And of course, a lot of people in that day and age came to see him and to ask questions of him. And yet he had taken a vow of silence, a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, which marks movements in uh, monastic life, basically. (laughs) And so I don't know if he found much peace living on top of that pillar. I know that as I read his history, he moved from a pillar simply six feet off the ground to one that was over 50 feet off the ground. And it was probably to get away from everybody who came to see him. He was looking for peace, quiet, and silence in his life. Well, it reminded me of another monastery deep in the woods in Europe, And uh, it followed uh, the rigid vows that the monastic life demands, and especially the vow of silence. And it could only be broken once a year on Christmas Day by one monk each year. And uh, the monk could only speak one sentence, and then he had to be quiet, and everybody else had to be quiet. On on one Christmas, Brother Thomas got up, and it was his turn that year to speak his sentence. He said, I love the delightful mashed potatoes that here every year with the Christmas roast. And then he sat down and silence ensued for 365 days. The next Christmas, Brother Thomas got up and he had his turn to speak. And he said, I love, excuse me, he said, I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and the roast is greasy and I truly despise the food. Once again, silence ensued for 365 days. The third year, Brother Paul got up, and he rose up, and he said, I am fed up with this constant bickering. I need some peace. And he sat down. And it seems like uh, these expressions of faith go to extremes, don't they? And yet, uh, we can look in many places for peace and seek out a monastic lifestyle, but yet I think God has put us in the world for purposes uh, beyond that, and that we are to penetrate the world around us and uh, to be people of peace. In fact, we're called to be peacemakers. And when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah. It's one of the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this Advent season, we are tracing God's plan of redemption through Scripture. And if you were with us last week, we looked at the promised seed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is often called 
the, the first gospel or the proto-evangelium is uh, what theologians call it, where there is this, uh, this foreshadowing that God is going to rescue people because of Adam and Eve's sin and the sin nature that is passed down generation to generation. And today we are looking at Genesis chapter 22, the promised son. Because of the promised seed, there was a promised son, and so we are going to Genesis chapter 22. You know, some people view the Old Testament like a line from the Chronicles of Narnia that, uh, where it, the author wrote, the land that was always winter but never Christmas. And yet that would be a tragic mistake if we looked at the Old Testament that way or what we call the Old Testament because that's not the way Jesus viewed the writings that came before the New Testament. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, Jesus said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures there on the road to Emmaus. I also am challenged when you think about Jesus' temptation in Matthew chapter 4 by Satan himself. And every time the accuser accused him and offered him something, Jesus answered out of the Old Testament, specifically the book of Deuteronomy in his answers. And I've been challenged personally. Could I defend my faith out of the book of Deuteronomy? Uh, That would be a challenge, wouldn't it? But Jesus Christ did that. The Apostle Paul believed in the whole purpose of God uh, sending Jesus Christ coming into the world Uh, that had the roots of the story and the covenants or the promises we find in the Old Testament with Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. If you take your copy of Scripture, whether it's between a leather cover and pages of paper, or if it's on your electronic device, and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to continue uh, with our study of God's redemptive plan. Very brief overview, basically, these four weeks leading up to our Christmas holiday. But this passage in Genesis 22 is perhaps... At once, uh, one of the most dramatic and most theologically significant episodes in the whole book of Genesis. And uh, we are going to look at that today. Follow along as I read Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. If you're able to stand as an act of worship for the reading of God's word, would you do so at this time? Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place for which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them were walking on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. 
And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, and behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Lord, we ask you today to teach our hearts and lives today. Change us because of this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. You may be seated. This uh, passage is probably, in literature, all of literature, probably the most well-known part of Scripture, not only by Christians, but by Jewish people uh, who adhere to Judaism, by Muslims, uh, by many around the world, and it is much uh, debated about. And uh, this cruel command, or seemingly cruel command, to sacrifice Isaac, uh, it is one of the finest texts of the faithfulness of the Lord towards Abraham, And also, it is a place where we are told that uh, there is one coming who will be our rescuer. He will be the perfect Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God. Perhaps this narrative is uh, the most shocking and memorable in the whole Bible one author wrote, and yet its outcome is one of the finest texts about God's covenant with Abraham and therefore with the nation Israel and also that we are the recipients of the blessings Uh, that Abraham was given by God himself. And so Abraham, Sarah, his wife, and Isaac, their son, uh, just portrayed a future sacrifice uh, that was going to happen uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 19, the writer of Hebrews refers back to this event, to this story I've just read to you, this narrative, where he writes, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, and that which he also received him back as a type. Uh, That is a key to what we are looking at today in Genesis 22. In theology, there is, when we study scripture, a thing called typology, And there are types identified in Scripture as the writer of Hebrews has identified this as a type of Christ, a type of the coming Messiah. This foreshadows what is to come. 
This is a figurative explanation. This is God using Abraham and Isaac to foreshadow the ultimate fulfillment of the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And so this is a type of Christ. In verses 1 and 2, we have here the greatest test, the greatest test. If you can imagine, we are not told much about Abraham's emotional response to the command from God himself. Abraham seems, uh, the writer is just not describing Abraham's emotion. But you can imagine, if God asks you to do something virtually impossible, something that you love more than anything in the world, to sacrifice it for him. One thing to understand is between the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 2, 20 years have elapsed at least 20 years. I know that most Sunday school material portrays Isaac as a young boy, but Isaac was probably 25. In fact, in Jewish literature, they estimate that Isaac was about 37, so he was a young adult when this event occurred. Remember, he was the miracle child. Isaac was the miracle child that Sarah and Abraham had. They had wanted a child, a son especially, to carry on the name, and God had promised clear back in Genesis chapter 12, in the covenant with Abraham, and Genesis 15, that he would have seed, that he would have progeny that would carry on the name, and that there would be a blessing coming from this long line of family. And so Abraham and Sarah, Sarah laughed when the angel of the Lord told her that she was going to have a child. She was 89 years old. Now, I don't know how many of you want to have children when you're 89 years old. Abraham was 99. Uh, when he had a child, when they had Isaac. And so that was the situation. This was their, the great fulfillment of God's promise, and this was an exercise of faith, the greatest test. If you look again at verse 1, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. He tested Abraham. It's very clear right at the beginning, the point and the picture of this thing he's asking Abraham to do. Now, for you and I, we know the end of the story, don't we? And so we have an ease of reading through this and going on. We know Isaac's not going to be sacrificed. We know the coming Messiah is foreshadowed here. Yet imagine yourself in Abraham's sandals. If he had to carry this out, what was he going to tell Sarah? Oh, I just murdered our son and sacrificed him on a funeral pyre up on Mount Moriah. Uh, How would he deal with that? This was a test of faith, a test of faith. God is asking Abraham, do you trust me? more and love me more than you love this miracle son, Isaac, this one who was a miracle that came in your old age. Jesus said to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And we know Abraham knew that there would be a coming Messiah. He had faith, but it was tested severely at this time. We had good friends in Dallas Seminary when we were there. Down in Dallas, I worked with Mike Fitzsimmons and his wife, Sherry. Uh, They moved to Dallas. They were probably our age and, uh, you know, second career people going to a seminary to graduate school. And uh, we worked together, and he was a very successful businessman in Indiana. And when they moved to Dallas, he had it all figured out. His whole four-year education was all, he was going to have it all paid for. Everything was going to work out just fine. Well, they had severe health crisis the first year they were there, and it wiped out all of their resources. And so Mike had to really exercise faith, and we prayed with him and his wife, Sherry, and how they were going to get through that. But the question is, is sometimes God tests our faith. What do we love more than God? 
And this was Abraham's test, and this was, I believe, the seventh time God had directly uh, addressed Abraham vocally. But it was a test of faith, and all of us, we have our faith tested. And really, faith, it's only when it's tested that we know it's, it's genuine, that we know it can stand up under the pressure of what is going on. And that's what he's doing to Abraham here in this time. And so we arrive at this text here today. And of course, we know that Abraham and Sarah tried to solve the childless issue by having Abraham have a relationship with Sarah's maid, Hagar. And out of that union, Ishmael was born, of course, the father of all the Arab nations. And so to this day, there is this problem between Ishmael's descendants and Isaac's descendants, isn't there? Because Abraham and Sarah tried to do it their way, tried to solve the issue on their own and not have faith in God because he had promised them that they would have their own son, that there would be in that lineage the Messiah who would be coming. And so we, today in this season, we, we celebrate, as Kevin said, the, the babe in the manger. And yet Kevin reminded us that this babe in the manger is our Savior who hung on the cross of Calvary and was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. In Genesis chapter 15, the promise to Abraham uh, where God took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham expressed faith then when God promised that he was going to have children. He's going to have a son and then a whole line. There'd be a great nation to build. And Abraham believed him. But this is the greatest test. He told him, Uh, he, he called out to him and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, take Isaac to the land of Moriah. Now, Beersheba is 50 miles south of Jerusalem. The mountains of Moriah are what surround Jerusalem. And uh, some would say that, and I tend to agree with them, that the actual place that uh, uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac was right on the temple mount in Jerusalem. And some of you have been there and seen the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim Uh, facility right there in that spot where the temple mount is and that was the altar upon which Isaac was going to be slaughtered and so it was a three-day journey up there and so Abraham responds obediently and that they were going to go up to worship notice his response he rose early in the morning saddled the donkey and two of his young men his servants and Isaac his son split wood for the burnt offering and went to the place God had told them And then it tells us that he raised his eyes after the third day. So there were three days in travel for Abraham to think about this. And Isaac did not know what was going on. But he says there in verse uh, 5, Abraham laid the wood on it. In verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. And they walked on together. And uh, he told the, excuse me, in verse 5, He said, I and the lad will go over and we will worship and return to you. And so Abraham is expressing faith even then. He doesn't know how it's going to work out, but he's going to go to worship. And he takes the knife and the torch, the instruments of death. It was probably a ceremonial knife that used in sacrifices that the Jews had to carry out uh, of the animals. And so that's where they had the son was supposed to die. Instruments of death and Isaac's physical life would be sacrificed and the fire would burn up the wood and the body where this body laid. In Isaac's case, there was a substitute to take his place, but nobody could take Jesus Christ's place on the cross centuries later. 
He was the only sacrifice that could completely take away the sins of the world. And so the sun, the picture is, is the wood. Five times the wood is mentioned in this passage, and it's put upon Isaac's back, and he carries it up to this place of sacrifice. And uh, it's interesting that it's mentioned five times, and he didn't start carrying the wood because, remember, the donkey was carrying it until they reached Mount Moriah. And the wood's not a picture of the cross, as some would say, because Jesus didn't carry the cross the whole way to Mount Calvary all the way to Calvary, the wood seems to be a picture of the burden of sin in our lives that Jesus bore for us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 25, Peter writes about Jesus Christ. He himself bore our sins in the body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And so Abraham took this wood, laid it upon his son, and the Lord laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. The prophet Isaiah said, And so, perceptively, Isaac said, okay, we have the fire, we have the wood, we have an altar built, where's the lamb? In verses 7 and 8, he spoke to his father and said, behold, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And in verses 9 through 14, God intervenes in a miraculous way. In 9 through 14, this portrait pictures the God of heaven, the heavenly Father who gave up his only son, his only begotten son, and the similarities between Isaac and the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his son. Unto us a son is given, Isaiah said, speaking and foretelling about the coming of Jesus Christ. He was the only son, John 3:16. for God gave his only son to die for us. And then this is the one they loved, Uh, Abraham loved Isaac, and God the Father loves his son. This is my beloved son, Matthew records in Matthew 17. Simply stated, Abraham knew that even if he killed Isaac, God would bring him back from the dead because he believed God. He said, God can do this as hard as it is. Isaac died figuratively here, but the lamb died literally. Hebrews 11, 19 where it tells us that uh, Abraham considered that God was able to raise even people from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In verse 11, we see that the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. By the way, in Scripture, if you hear your name called twice, you better pay attention, okay? (laughs) Abraham, Abraham. The angel of the Lord. It's interesting. The angel of the Lord is mentioned twice in this passage. Again, uh, over in verse 15, the angel of the Lord. And this is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. This is the Son of the Trinity and the pre-incarnate Christ. We often think of Jesus' beginning. In fact, that was an early church heresy at the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. But remember, Jesus Christ is God the second person of the triunity, and he existed eternity past. He exists eternity future. He is infinite with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, we see these what are called theophanies, these appearances of Jesus Christ in ministry. And we know that's the pre-incarnate Christ because in verse 11, the angel of the Lord called him of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you uh, have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Okay, that's a personal reference to God himself. 
And so this theophany intervenes here. And uh, God will provide. In verse 14, Abraham talks about when God, that uh, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, or Yahweh Jireh is the Hebrew there, that uh, the Lord will provide in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of the difficulty and the adversity that we face. When our faith is really being tested, we look for God's provision down in the road. John R.W. Stott, who is a British theologian and pastor, wrote this about the sufferings of Christ, about Christ's pain on the cross. Quoting Stott, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I turned to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through the hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from the thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his, in his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death, unquote. And so Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac shows the deliverance from the curse that will have to involve sacrifice and death. It's a signal. It's a foreshadowing. It's a, a looking ahead from their perspective of Jesus's eventual redemptive act for you and I. Paul writes in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us, how will he not also give him freely give us all things? God confirms his promise in verses 15 through 19. Remember the promise in Genesis 15 that I read for you earlier. This is a repetition of that. There's Abraham's faith in God's provision in 15 through 19, where it says the angel of the Lord again called Abraham a second time. And he said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of the enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And we sit here today, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are a recipient of the blessing that was given to Abraham, and we are humbled by that because it's only through the grace of God that we were given it. The son was raised from the dead. Isaiah did not actually physically die, but in a figurative sense, he died and was raised from the dead. He was almost slaughtered there on that altar. Jesus, however, really did die physically. He was buried, and then he was resurrected, triumphantly gaining the victory over sin and death. So this type of of the Messiah, this type of Jesus. There are many comparisons. Only begotten Son, Isaac was the promised one. God the Father gave us the begotten Son, offered up on a mountain or on a hill, and that's where Jesus was crucified. Notice that the donkeys took the person to the place of sacrifice, and two men went with them. The three days' journey was reflected in three days in the grave for Jesus Christ. And God will provide for himself a lamb. And here he provided this ram caught in a thicket, this one who would be the, the substitute, if you will. And Jesus Christ is the substitute for us on the cross of Calvary because as sinners, as lost people, we deserve hell. And yet because God has intervened, he has brought us salvation. 
The son was offered on the wood, Jesus Christ on the cross, Isaac on this wood they had brought up for the sacrifice. And the seed will be multiplied. Abraham went down. The servants gets a bride for the son and so on. There are many parallels here in this type, in this foreshadowing. Look at verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Did you notice that Abraham returned to the two servants and nothing is said about Isaac? Isn't that curious that nothing is said about Isaac? Isaac, in fact, is not mentioned again until he meets his bride in chapter 24, verse 26. There is a picture for us there as the church. It is obvious, we know, as reading the text, that well, Isaac had to have gone back with his father. Uh, the Bible type reminds us, though, that the next event in God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ to claim his bride, which is the church of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ worldwide, and he is coming again to redeem us. We call that the rapture, First Thessalonians. And so as we experience trials and testing of our faith, we look forward to the fact when he will reclaim his bride and we will be with him forever and ever. We will seek to glorify God and he will do the rest. So remember, in serious testings of your faith, that God knows that. Jesus Christ is with you. He will not forsake you. And if you've never believed in him for everlasting life, you have to seriously consider what this foreshadows, this historical account in the book of Genesis thousands of years before that portrays the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. This divine salvation, deliverance from death, would come through the birth of a son to a barren woman, required sacrifice, and offered a blessing to the whole world. I was reading about the late senator, John McCain. And, of course, I think most of you know that he was a prisoner of war in the war in Vietnam. And uh, one time he was asked by a reporter about his own personal journey of faith. And uh, in his article that I read about, he shared a story about something that had occurred while he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He said, when I was, this is quoting John McCain, when I was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, my captors would tie my arms behind my back and then loop the rope around my neck and ankle so that my head was pulled down between my knees. I was often left like that throughout the night. Then one night, a guard came into my cell. He put his fingers to his lips, signaling for me to be quiet. He loosened my ropes to relieve my pain, and the next morning, when his shift was ending, he returned and retightened the ropes, never saying a word to me. A month or so later, on Christmas Day of that year, I was standing in the dirt courtyard when I saw the same guard approach me. He walked up and stood silently next to me, not looking or smiling at me, and then he used his sandaled foot to draw a cross in the dirt. We stood wordlessly looking at the cross, remembering the true light of Christmas, even the dark, even in the darkness of the Vietnamese prisoner of war camp, unquote. So the question is, is when we look at Abraham's response and the impossible situation and the request that God had of him and how God intervened and that he provided a savior, the question has to be asked, what do we do with Jesus? Not this nice babe in a nice sanitary manger, but Jesus Christ who came to die for the sins of the world, as Keevan said.
And so today, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ for your eternal well-being, for your everlasting life, today can be the day of your salvation. Because he said that whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What a wonderful promise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each one here. We thank you, Lord, for Abraham and Isaac, and thank you for your work in their lives. Thank you for this account which prefigures and foreshadows the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we consider that and look to that, this holiday season as we work our way towards Christmas, may we not be so involved in the rush and the lack of peace that we miss the joy and miss the the great blessing of your grace in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)